So for those of you who are new, we're in the middle of our study of the book of Acts. In fact, we're in the final stages of that book. Uh, The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, and it really outlines and details the beginning of the church of Christ, the ministry of Jesus after he ascended into heaven. And it began in Acts 1.8 to where he said, power will come, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Like he outlined this amazing ministry that we would be empowered and called to do. And then we followed that path all the way through and we saw the work of God in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then we saw God do a work in conversion of Saul. And then from then on, the book of Acts really became about the ministry of Paul. I don't know if you've recognized that. Like Paul seems to be the primary instrument of God for 16 chapters so far of Acts for us. And if we're not careful, it would cause us to believe and think that Paul is the only instrument of God, like Paul is special, that Paul is unique, and that Paul is the one vessel that God's using in the midst of that region. And I just want to make sure you understand that's not true. There's countless other people during the time of Paul's ministry that God is doing great things in and great great things through as well. The apostle Peter is still going. Philip is still going. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is still going. You have countless elders, teachers, prophets, leaders doing work around the kingdom of God, growing and building. Paul is just one instrument, but one instrument that seems to be a focal point of Acts. And I don't know if you've wondered or just asked, why is the book of Acts so focused on Paul? Where is that? Like why for 16 chapters, we don't hear much about Peter, we don't hear much about Philip, we don't hear much about the other prophets and teachers and elders and leaders, we hear about Paul, why? I mean, we've been able to witness great things through Paul, we watched his conversion, we we watched how God grew him, taught him, how he grew in influence and power, we journeyed with him through his missionary journeys. We're able to watch his miracles. We're amazed at the way he impacted and influenced regions of the world. So much focus is on Paul. Why? What does God want us to see? Does he want us to come away recognizing that God loves superstars, that if we don't have a Christian superstar, then we're all doomed? Or maybe God wants us to recognize how good we have it and how thankful we are that we don't have to live like Paul. Or maybe it's to inspire us. Maybe it's to make us wish that and wonder why God doesn't do things in our life and in our time the way God did things in his life, in his time. I I think part of what God wants us to see is just his history of activity in the life of Paul to give us all hope that if God can do this in someone like Paul, God can do this in someone like you. But I think going through the history of Acts, it also gives us an opportunity to model our lives after Paul. In fact, that's one of the things he encouraged the Corinthian church to do. Look at what he wrote. 
He said this, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. He continues and he says, just as also I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Again, this is the heart of Paul, right? We talk about this all the time. Paul's like, I will be all things to all people. I will do anything it takes to have an opportunity to open people's eyes to who Jesus is. But then look how he finished it. He said, be imitators of me. This is also, I am, I am a, an imitator of Christ. So this isn't just a call that Paul had for his life. This is a call that we ought to have for ours. To be all things for all people. Do whatever it takes to be involved, to have a response for the hope that's within us so people will see Jesus as we do. Paul says, be imitators of me. That term imitators the Greek word is where we get our English word mime from. It means to copy, to mimic, to follow, move by move. Paul says, the way that I live my life in the book of Acts, I want to encourage you to live your life that exact same way. Paul says, mimic me, imitate me in your life. And I know people tell us that this is the kookiest culture's ever been, and it's just not true. There's been kookier times in history and Paul ministered in the midst of it. We have a great model. We have a great pattern to follow. And that's what I've loved so much about the book of Acts. It doesn't just give us history of how God did it, but it gives us a model, a pattern for how we can live our lives in our own kooky culture of today. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 23. Again, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. We are in chapter 23. As you're turning there, looking there, Acts chapter 23, let me catch you up on where we are in the story. Paul's already finished his missionary journeys, his third missionary journey. As he was wrapping that up, he began to communicate. The Holy Spirit put something in his heart that he needs to get to Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit told him he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer. There's going to be challenges and difficulties when he gets to Jerusalem. And Paul just seems focused and hell-bent on getting there. And at the last part of his missionary journey, he began a farewell tour telling people, I think this is the last time you're going to see me. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem. And again, Christians are like, no, 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 Paul, don't go. God doesn't want you to suffer. God has a wonderful plan for your life to prosper you. Like he wants all of us to have nice homes and freedom and great families, long lives, no disease, rainbows, unicorns. Paul, you don't understand. <laughs> and Paul's response I said, no, no, you don't understand. Paul says, my goal, my desire, I want to serve Jesus. God's calling me to Jerusalem, and if suffering is a part of it, then suffering's a part of it. He ends up getting to Jerusalem. Goes through a very expensive and extensive purification ritual, not because he has to, but because he's trying to make peace with people outside. Before he even gets to finish that, People see him in the temple and there's this riot forming about Paul. Start believing lies about him. The riot got so big that the Roman soldiers had to come in and save Paul's life. 
And as they're dragging him away, picking him up and lifting him, Paul says, no, 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 let me talk to my people. And last week we heard Paul's testimony of mercy, like he was pleading with the people to help them recognize, even though he was likely bleeding and bloodied from this, from this mob, from this riot where they were beating on him, he still has this heart to help people see Jesus as he does. But at the end of his testimony, he told him, but Jesus called me, Paul says, to the Gentiles. And people went bananas, and they tried to get at him again, tried to kill him, and so the guards rescued him again from that. But because Paul's a Roman citizen, he has the right to due process. There has to be an accusation, and that's where we pick up the story. You have this Roman soldier trying to figure out what's going on, what happened to Paul, and that's where we pick up our story, Acts chapter 23. In fact, we're going to read the last verse of Acts chapter 22. So in your chapter 23, verse 1, just go up one verse, pick up the story. Acts chapter 22, verse 30 says this, but on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, and he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brother, and I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Let's hit pause for a minute because I want to help you understand. See, what was going on is the Roman director called the Sanhedrin together. The Sanhedrin is the supreme Jewish, religious, political, and legal council in Jerusalem. This council would contain high-ranking priestly officials as well as the capital of the temple guard, and everyone understood that they were the last word for politics and religion in the area. And so Paul was called before the Sanhedrin, and verse 1 says that Paul looked intently at them. Paul gazed at each and every one of them in their eyes, confidently, slowly, looking at them in the eyes. And then he said this, brethren, my friends, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That phrase, perfectly good conscience, it means Paul has no need for remorse on how he lived his life. He's lived his life in a way that God is perfectly pleased with who he is and what he's done. That is God's desire. He said, listen, I looked all of them in the eyes and said, listen, I have lived my life with no concern about judgment. God and I are good. I have nothing to apologize for. And if you've been following the book of Acts with me, you're looking like, what? Really? Paul believes he has nothing to apologize for. Remember Paul before his conversion? He persecuted Christians. He hunted them down some of them to the death. He lived in opposition to the plan of God for a large period of time. In fact, Paul described himself as a chief of all sinners. So how does a man like that look the religious establishment in the eye and say that I have a clear conscience? Me and God are good. I don't fear judgment from God. I have nothing to apologize for. Everything is clear. I have a clear conscience. I no longer function from a result of shame or guilt or worry of judgment. I have a clear conscience. How does he say that? And my second question is, can you say that? Let me show you something. If you have your Bibles, put your thumb in Acts chapter 23 and flip over to the right to the next book of the Bible, the book of Romans Romans chapter 8, I want to help you maybe understand something that Paul understands and something I think we need to understand. There's Paul in the midst of these 
religious leaders, the religious authority of his day, and Paul looks at him and says, listen, I have a clear conscience. I have no fear of judgment from you. God and I are good. How can Paul say that? Romans 8, look at verse 1. He says this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That means there's no guilty verdict, no judgment of guilt that will be cast against those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, after he went through and described salvation in chapter 6 and 7, he says, therefore, because of that, there's no guilty verdict for you. For anyone who's in Christ, you have been declared righteous. You have been declared justified. You have been cleansed from all of your sins. Jesus paid the penalty for your brokenness, for your failure, for your sin. In fact, look on. Let's just keep going down later in that chapter. Look at verse 31. Look what Paul says. Romans 8, 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised was at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. Paul says, who will separate us then from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Distress? Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, look at this. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then Paul goes into this famous verse, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, we see in this instance, Paul's looking at these guys and saying, look, I know who I am before the Lord. Jesus paid my penalty. He has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. He has declared me righteous and free from the guilt of judgment. I am innocent. I have nothing to prove to you because Jesus and I are good. And Paul looked at them with confidence and says, I have no guilt. I have no shame. I have been redeemed and restored and I'm no longer a weakened vessel of sin, but I am an instrument of God. Restored, redeemed, and empowered to be a reflection of his glory. And Paul looked them in the eyes confidently and said that. My question is, can you? Man, I think Christians so often today, we walk through life still buried in the guilt of our failure, still hiding the shame of our past, still worried that someone may find out who we once were before Christ. I wonder, do you have the confidence that Paul had? I want to remind you and encourage you, if you have accepted salvation, the payment of sin, if you have repented of your failures and allowed Jesus to cover the consequences of your sin, you have been justified, declared righteous, free from guilt. There is no condemnation. You have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if you're good with Jesus, what does anyone else matter? Who can judge you if you've been declared righteous by him? Man, if you gain nothing else from the Apostle Paul from the message today, my hope is that you leave with that confidence. 
either for the first time or the hundredth time, that you can recognize that you are not a weakened vessel of sin, but a chosen, redeemed, and empowered instrument of God if you've received the gift of salvation. Story continues. Paul looks him in the eyes and clearly communicates his confidence, his position, but you're gonna find out that the high priest does not agree. Look at verse two, chapter 23, verse two. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. Paul, get that word out of your mouth. You don't have a clear conscience. Man, and, and listen, you gotta understand something about Ananias. Ananias as a priest was not known for his reflection of God. As a high priest, you're supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. You're supposed to be you know, a person who reflects the characteristics of God, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Ananias hears this and not only gives a direct command that's in contradiction to the law of the Jews. Ananias is known as someone who Steals tithes from other priests. Tithes are supposed to go to other priests below him. He's known as someone who, who stole those. He made bribes to Roman officials. For his own personal gain, he was known as a cruel and violent and merciless leader. I got to tell you, if there's anyone who wasn't the poster boy for being a clear conscience before God, it was Ananias. He had no position to question Paul's clear conscience. But what we see here all of a sudden, we have this confrontation. What we've already experienced through Acts, there's this continued confrontation between the religious leadership of the day and the movement of God. Look what happened next, verse three. As soon as he got struck, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That term whitewashed wall, it should bring us back to what Jesus said to the Pharisees, right? Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Same type of idea. You're clean and fancy on the outside, but your inside's rotten. It's crumbly. It's full of death. Jesus looks, or Paul looks at Ananias and says, look, you look pretty on the outside, but you're a wreck on the inside. Where God looks. Man looks at the exterior. God looks at the heart. Look at it. He said, do you sit and try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? Who are you, Ananias? You're breaking the law and how you're responding to me. Look at verse four. But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And there we go, the beginning of a generations long argument between smarter people than you and me. And here's the question. Here's what they argue about. Was Paul right or wrong in his response? Paul goes and says, I have a clear conscience. Ananias, a high priest, has him struck. And Paul says, God will strike you down. And people say, hey, 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 Paul, you should speak respectfully to the high priest. And there's two camps. The question was, Paul right or Paul wrong? One camp says, oh, we love it when Paul does this. See, what was going on? The high priest was supposed to be a descent of Aaron, appointed by God. At this point, the high priest role, it was all corrupt. It was appointed by Rome, not by God. So there's some people who say, Paul's looking and saying, yeah, you're right, I should be respectful to the high priest. When you get one, tell me. When you get a high priest, let me know, and I'll be respectful of him. That's one group. 
that Paul was hot. He was on fire and he had every right to be confrontational with the leadership. There's another group. It says, no, you can see in here Paul's humility and contriteness. Paul's, you know, some say, well, Paul had bad vision by this time. He probably couldn't recognize who was speaking. Paul's been gone for a while. Maybe he doesn't know who the high priest is. And so when people say, hey, that was the high priest. You need to be respectful. Paul says, oh, no, 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 you're right. My bad. I need to be respectful of the high priest. And the argument's been going for generations. Regardless of where you land, the emotion of the confrontation is visible for all. But here's why I think, look what Paul happened next. See, it would have been easy for, for Paul to get caught up in this emotion, caught up in this confrontation, that there's just this battle that continues. But look what Paul does. See, first word of verse six is a but, big biblical but. And I tell you all the time, I love those. I circle those in my Bible. Because what those do is they give us a direction that we're changing gears. What you think is going to happen, we're going in the opposite direction. Just when you think there's this battle of words between Paul and Ananias, all of a sudden things change. And look what it says, Paul perceived that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. That term perceived, a little light went on, bing. Right there in the middle of the battle, Paul has this idea, bing. He suddenly recognizes, he realizes, oh, look, there's two conflicting parties here in the group. That term, the but and perceiving, lead me to think that Paul's like, oh, you know what? Let's change gears. In the Sanhedrin, there are two basic groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees, well, let's keep reading. Paul began crying out to the council, brother, and I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there, were, uh, there occurred a dissension between Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes in the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel did speak to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to, take down, to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. So here's what I think happened. You have this, this confrontation. And in the midst of the conversation, Paul perceived, bing, hey, I know. He says, I'm here, I'm being accused, and I'm being persecuted because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I think Paul very much, man, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. He just kept it vague. I'm here because I believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And step back. Paul recognizing the corruption of the court. Paul recognizing the kangaroo system he's a part of. He comes up and just lays out and says, listen, I believe in the resurrection. That's why you're coming after me. And step back and let them do their work. And look what happened right after he said that. The Bible says there's a dissension between the Pharisees. A term dissension. Bible talk for a heated debate, a riot, a fight right there on the floor of the chambers, a huge brouhaha. And we look at that like, oh, Brian, that happens all the time. It happened just last week in our own Congress, right? Everyone's voting 15 times, 16 times, whatever it is for who's going to be the speaker. And there's this group of people that are holding out, right? And everyone's starting to get upset. And there came a moment on the floor where these two groups, these two guys started to get into it. They had to be separated from their peers, Right there on the floor of Congress, just this last week, that happens all the time. 
It's like Paul just went into the Congress and he said, hey, okay, you guys are coming after me. Here's what I think. I think we need to put a border wall around the border of south of California and step back and let them go. (laughs) Hey, I think presidents should get to take classified documents to their house and leave them in their garage (laughs) and let them go. Eh, Some people disagree, but I think the text says Paul perceiving, recognizing. You have Sadducees and Pharisees, and these guys had these very clear differences in their philosophies and their directions. And I want to take a moment to pause. We have these study guides. Pastor Jeff does a remarkable job of creating these for us every time we have a series. He creates these for a number of reasons. One, we want you to be involved in communicating and wrestling with biblical truths throughout the week, not just on Sundays. We don't think it's enough to just come for an hour and a half on Sundays. And so Jeff provides place for your sermon notes. You can remember what God brought to your mind on Sundays. And he writes a number of questions that you can go through on your own. You can go through with buddies at work. You can do in your small group or with your family and go through and help you wrestle with how do we apply these truths of God in our lives. And every week, there's an introduction section. This, I want to encourage you, this week's introduction section goes into how the Pharisees, how the Sadducees came to be, what they did, and why this was such a big deal. If you're not sure and you love all that history stuff, I want to encourage you, grab a study guide. In fact, normally we do this the first couple weeks of every series, but we have a lot of new people at our church now, and so I want to make sure everyone has one. So if you don't have a study guide, Raise your hand. My lovely assistants are here, ready to give one to you. And, and please don't feel any sort of awkwardness. My own wife in the front row, first service, needed a study guide. So if the pastor's wife needs a study guide in the middle of the third book of Acts, you don't need to feel bad, right? So we have some over here. We have some over here in the front. If you'd like a study guide, I want to encourage you to grab one of these. We print these for you each and every sermon series. And by the way, they're also on... Uh, Over to the left, Dennis, to my left, your left too, I guess, right over here in the front. Mike, Dennis, thank you. I want to encourage you, use these. Jeff does such a great job, very grateful for him. Jeff, actually, do I see him in the back? There he is, in the back. He hates it when I do this, so, but that's why I do it now. So here's what we see so far. We see Paul in this confrontation with religious leadership. Number one, we see here is confidence, his commitment. I believe I'm justified. I'm declared righteous before God. I don't have anything to answer to you guys. But we also see this, in my opinion, what I think the text says, this shrewdness that Paul recognized the situation he was in and he had this remarkable strategy to proclaim truth but allow these people to expose themselves for who they are It reminded me of something Jesus told his disciples as he was sending them out. He said this, look what he said, Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, he said this. Behold, surprise, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. I mean, it's Jesus saying, look, I'm sending you out and it's not always gonna be easy. It's not always gonna be simple. Everyone's not gonna love you. In fact, I'm sending you out to people that won't love you. The more you look like me, the more they will hate you. I'm sending you out. In the midst of wolves. So, as a result, look what Jesus says. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You don't get to pick between the two, mind you. Be shrewd as serpents 
and innocent as doves. Shrewd means to be wise and fight insightful, street smart, but also innocent, pure, undefiled, untainted by sin. Man, you want a great example, in my opinion, of what that looks like? Acts chapter 23 and Paul. Paul gave us a great model of being shrewd yet innocent, humble yet honest. And I was thinking, what a great balance for Christians in the church today, right? To be shrewd and innocent. I wanted to ask you, how well do you think we do with that? Not just our church, the church nationwide. You think we have a great balance of being shrewd and innocent? I think there's times where we're super shrewd, not very innocent. Maybe other times we're super innocent, not very shrewd. And can I tell you, that's why I love our system of doing church with our elder board. Man, being shrewd and innocent, shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove, that is a very difficult line to walk. And I got to tell you, I am not good at walking that by myself. How about you? And I love the fact that I have other people around me. I tend to be overly innocent. And I guide people into trouble. I'm grateful that there's other people. And I got to be honest, there's other people who maybe err more on the side of shrewd. But together, as we seek to honor the Lord together, we strive to walk this balance of being shrewd and innocent. Listen, I got to tell you, I think Paul does a great example of modeling that. You got to feel for Paul, though. He's been through a remarkably difficult time. Dating all the way back to his third missionary journey. Who knew this was coming? He got to Jerusalem, and sure enough, it's happened. The guards have had to rescue him now three times from being ripped to shreds by these people. I mean, the Apostle Paul's got to be in a doldrum, like, oh my gosh, I'm doomed. Like, the whole system is built up against me. I'm, it's hopeless. I'm never going to make it. I don't know what's going on. Look what happens just when everything seems hard. This is where we get the next experience of Paul's ministry. And look at this. I call it a commendation. Look at verse 11. Again, we see a big biblical but, right, that leads us away, lets us know that something different's happening right when you think everything's hopeless. All of a sudden, God does something. Look at this. But on the night immediately following, right, the very night after all this brouhaha happened, Immediately following, the Lord stood at his side. Jesus came and stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. At one of Paul's lowest spots, Jesus himself comes by and he says, Take courage. That phrase, take courage, means cheer up, be courageous, keep your chin up, kid. Right there, just when Paul thinks that there's no point, there's no purpose, I'm powerless against this group, everything's stacked against me, Jesus comes and says, cheer up, take courage, I'm still at work. It's not a message that Paul, that Jesus just gave Paul. It's a message found through God, to God's people throughout scripture. Look at Joshua 1.9, something the Lopez family prays for their kids. Look, I have not, have I not commanded you? This is... The words of God to Joshua after Moses passed and Joshua is left with this rebellious group of Jews heading into the promised land. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, cheer up. Take courage. I'm with you. 
That phrase, take courage, something that Jesus used oftentimes in his earthly ministry. There was a paralyzed man. Right before Jesus healed him, he said, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. And just so everyone knows that I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. There was another time, there was a lady who was bleeding much of her life. Couldn't find any hope, any relief. She was hopeless for any sort of future, but then she saw Jesus walking by. She believed, oh, if I can just touch the corner of his cloak, he can heal me. She touched his cloak, and Jesus said, who touched me, right? Remember that story? And she's freaking out like, oh, my gosh, I just took off Jesus. And Jesus' words to her, take courage. Keep your chin up. Still at work. Disciples were in a boat. They're in the midst of the storm. Jesus is present. They're freaking out. We're all going to die. Wake up, Jesus. Jesus gets up. You know what he says. Take courage. I got this. Relax. I'm right here. At the Last Supper, before Jesus gets betrayed, he's talking with his disciples about some of the difficulties they're going to face in the future. As he's looking at his deepest, at his dearest friends who are struggling inside, Jesus looks at them. He should have said, don't you dare deny me. You know what he said instead? Take courage. Earlier in Paul's career, second missionary journey in Corinth, he was in this point of depression. Remember that? Hopeless. Jesus showed up, comforted him then. Happens again. Paul's at this low spot. Jesus shows up, comforts him again. And I just got to ask you, man, if Joshua needed the encouragement of God, if the apostle Paul needed the encouragement of God twice, if throughout scripture, God continues to remind his people, take courage, I am with you. My question is, where do you need to hear that in your life? Where are you prepared to quit, give up, hopeless in life, not sure how to proceed, doubtful if God can work within you or in you. Maybe God's even given up on you. God's message to you is take courage. Keep your chin up. I'm at work. Maybe you look at your marriage, you look at your family, you're like, this is hopeless. God's word to you, take courage. Maybe you look at your children, your grandchildren, they're too far lost, they're too far gone. They don't listen to me. They don't receive my messages. They never respond. Maybe I just need to give up and let go. God's message to you might be, take courage. Maybe you look at kooky California. And you're like, oh, it's what, pff, pointless. It's lost. I can't wait till I can move to where God lives, Texas. <laughs> Arizona, Tennessee, Idaho, anywhere in South Carolina, any other places that God lives. He lives everywhere but here, I think. Maybe it's time for me to go too. Maybe God's message for you. Take courage. Maybe you're just in the midst of a situation in life where you think you've blown it. You're too far lost, too far gone. God's just abandoned you. Perhaps you need to hear God's message. Take courage. So I think if we learn anything from the Apostle Paul, It's the, I mean, God even promised, Jesus mentioned this to his disciples, I will never leave you 
nor forsake you. If we learn anything from the Apostle Paul, maybe we need to be reminded of that truth more often. Take courage. God is still at work in your life and through your life. That commendation from Jesus came at just the right time. I mean, doesn't it seem like that? Like God's time's always perfect, right? God's message of encouragement comes at just the right time because look at verse 12. When it was day, like the very next day, right? Paul had this brouhaha with the Sanhedrin. Jesus gives him encouragement. Hey, Paul, relax, I got you. I'm in this. I'm still at work. The very next day, look what happens. There's this whole conspiracy. The very next day, the Jews formed a conspiracy, bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And as we, for our part, we are ready to slay him before he comes near this place. Right? What a great image of purity and slow to wrath and anger and try to be above reproach, right? They're doing a fantastic job. But just when you think that Paul's doomed, he's going to get killed, just when you think, oh, hope is lost, verse 16, another big biblical but right there. Just when you think, how can this work out? Everyone's against Paul, but the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander, free of something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to tell him to ask me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took the lad by the hand, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. Okay, what do you want to tell me? Verse 20, the lad said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down toward to the council as though they are going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, who have bound themselves under a curse, not to eat or drink until they kill him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Just when you think all hope is lost, this whole ruse comes to fruition. Look how it ends, verse 23. This commander called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Centuria, Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, right? So you have over 400 soldiers right here. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and what was about to be slain by him, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Not exactly how it happened, but good enough. Wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Hey, the best I can find, he didn't do anything. When I was informed that there would be Be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Look at verse 31. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. 
But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Let me stop for a second and just summarize what happened. Paul was a prisoner, falsely accused. But because he's a Roman citizen, he had certain rights. This commander understands, I don't know what he did. I can't figure it out. I don't want him to die under my watch or I'm going to get in trouble. So I'm going to send him to the governor. Normally, a prisoner who's sent to the governor, it's not going to be a very pleasant journey. And then he's going to be held in prison, but not Paul. Paul's delivered to Felix like a king. He got to ride a horse. He didn't have to walk. He was carried there surrounded by an army around him, an army that most political leaders don't get as they travel. And then when he finally arrives, he doesn't have to go to prison. He's in house arrest. He's in Felix's office. He's allowed to have people come and go. He's protected. He's fed. He's able to witness to people. We're going to read all of this as we look forward. But we hear after all of the confrontation, after all the conspiracies, God's promise, Paul, don't worry, I got you. Paul ends up in living a life of luxury with the governor. And we're left at the end of the section with these poor guys, they're probably still starving, waiting for their opportunity to kill Paul. And if you learn nothing from watching Paul's life, that would be this, that you should have confidence in the plan and providence of God. I was reading recently, I came across this quote from Augustine. First service, I said St. Augustine. This service, I'll say Augustine. We'll see who complains more at the end because there's always a debate how it's said, right? But listen to whatever his name is. Listen to what he said. Trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to his love, and the future to his providence. I thought, if you learn nothing from the model of Paul, I think it's that. Trust the past to the mercy of God. I, I, I'm not worried about any condemnation. There's no condemnation. God's paid for everything. Trust the presence to his love. God says he's got me. I'm going to go. Trust the future to his providence. The apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I, I know some of you are in the midst of some really challenging things. I know some of you in issues with family, some of you issues with children, grandchildren, some of you battling really serious health concerns, others worried about our culture and politics looking forward. But I want to encourage you. The thing we learn about Paul is that God can take all of this, the good things, the bad things, your successes and your failures, and wrap them all up, not just for your personal growth, but his glory. The question I want to leave you with is this, where do you need to take courage and continue on in your pursuit of God and reflection of his glory? Let's pray. Father, many of us are here because we believe in your name. We believe in your power. We believe in your promise of salvation. God, we have experienced it. We have received it. And we're here, God, because we celebrate it together. 
But God, if we're honest, there's also those times in the quietness of our hearts that we still worry about our failures. We still struggle with shame and guilt. We still wrestle with, wrestle with the failures of our past. And God, to be honest, there's still very many aspects of our lives where we do function as an instrument weakened by sin instead of a vessel restored and empowered by God. So God, I pray is for the Christians here, God, that you would give us the boldness and confidence that you gave Paul. The same boldness and confidence that you gave Joshua. God, the same confidence you gave David when he said, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because we know you're with us. God, even in the presence of our enemies, you set table for dinner. You're not worried. God, you've anointed our head with oil and our cup overflows. God, help us to have the confidence like those men. God, I pray you help us to walk that balance between shrewd and innocence. God, help us to be above reproach as we seek to reflect you in all areas, but God, help us to be wise as we move forward. God, help us, give us ears to hear your spirit, God, that we might walk a path that honors you in every aspect. And God, I pray for those who are here today who are just ready to give up, to quit, throw in the towel of their faith in you or their aspect of life. God, I pray that you would open their ears and allow them to hear your promise of take courage. Give them a peace that surpasses all human comprehension as they entrust their path into your hands. God, give them confidence and faith as they walk these difficult days in confidence that you will do a work not just in their life but through it. God, lastly, I pray for people who are here who have yet to receive your mercy. People here who have yet to receive payment from sin, who are still buried in guilt and shame, fear of judgment, worry about the future. God, for those people, I pray, open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. God, they might understand your reality and your power. God, open their hearts that they would have the humility to just confess their sins to you. To declare their brokenness and to ask you for a fresh start. And God, as they do that, I pray you respond and you hear them as you've promised. That you would forgive them of their sins. And you would lead them on the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And God, may you give them peace and rest in their soul today as they find communion with you. And God, may you then transform them into a vessel that brings you honor and glory for the rest of their days. God, as a church, we come before you, ask God, you continue to open our mouths that we might proclaim your glory. Open our eyes that we might see you clearly. God, open our hearts 
that we'd be prepared to offer you our lives and trust you in the midst of the good and the hard, that you will bring yourself glory and grow us in the process. We pray everything in Jesus' name.